Hey there, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, and we are at lines 35 through 57 of Canto 6 of Inferno, and I'm sure you can hear me smiling, and I'm just going to confess to you why I smiled and why I am smiling right now as I recorded this entire podcast, forgetting to press the record button, so I came to edit it, and there was nothing in this file. Oh my gosh. What? <laughs> I must have been so excited about the gluttons, I forgot to press record. Anyway, here we are. We're in the second passage of Canto Six that we're using as we walk through the Inferno and ultimately the Purgatory and Paradiso at a very slow pace. This is my translation of the passage. I am sure it's recording. I'm watching it record right now, so I'm good to go. If you want to see this passage, you can look it up on my website, MarkScarborough.com or WalkingWithDante.com, and you can see my English translation of the passage. Even better, you could get yourself a great facing page translation where you could see the medieval Tuscan on one side and an English translation on the other. So here's the passage. We were walking over the shades that lay about under the leaden rain and putting the soles of our feet on that emptiness that seemed like real people. All of them were scattered about on the ground, except for one who sat right up, right when he saw us pass in front of him. Oh, you who get a guided tour of hell, he said to me. Recognize me, if you've got the know-how. You were before I was unmade. Made. And I to him, the distress you suffer may have erased you from my mind so that I don't think I've ever seen you before. But tell me who you are, sit down in this place of suffering with such a penalty that none is so nauseating, even if it's greater. And he to me, your city, which is so full of envy that its bag overflows, held me in it when life was cloudless. Your citizens called me jackal, and for the contemptible sin of the gut, as you can see, I am beaten down by this rain. I am a miserable spirit, but I am not alone. All these here endure the same penalty for the same guilt. And then he said no more. That's as far as we're going to take it. It's a short passage because it is full, full of ideas and problems and interpretive issues and gorgeous poetry that I want to point out. And so what I'm going to do for this is I'm going to basically give you, hmm, I think, about six different points out of this passage. And we can kind of look at them each one by one as we move through it. He starts out, we were walking over the shades, the pilgrim is walking over the shades that lay about the, under the leaden rain and putting the soles of our feet on that emptiness that seemed like real people. Come on, you know what I'm going to say. How can the rain and the hail hurt the spirits, but somehow the pilgrim is unaffected? Don't those giant hailstones hurt the pilgrim? And we're even told that the rain is so heavy that it hurts. Is the pilgrim hurt by all of this stuff? And furthermore... What's going on here with putting the soles of our foot on that emptiness? So they're stepping through them. And all right, I understand Dante, would the pilgrim, is in his body. He's going to step through the shades. It's a little problematic, but okay. He's going to step through the shades. But why is Virgil doing this? He's just putting the soles of our feet on that emptiness that seemed like real people. I mean, Virgil's a shade. Wouldn't he just float over them just the way those shades of the great poets float over that water before the castle in Canto 4, where Dante doesn't seem to step in the water but walks on the water. It is so tough to try to figure this all 
out. Really what we're getting to, and I know I've hit this so many times, we're getting to the question of the materiality of spirit. That's really the question. It's the question of whether your soul or your spirit weighs anything. I'm not not jesting here. Whether it weighs anything. Can I take a ruler to your soul? Can I measure your soul? And I don't mean measure it good or bad or altruistic or selfish. I don't mean that. I mean a ruler. Are there a number of centimeters that your soul is tall? Does it take up depth? If your soul were standing here in front of me, could I step into its space? Could we occupy the same space at the same moment? Here, it seems like Maybe you could because the soles of their feet are stepping on the emptiness that seem like real people. But other places, then how does that emptiness, which is Virgil, how does it pick up dirt and throw it into Cerberus's mouths? How does that work? If, the, if it has no materiality, how does it interact with matter then? This is really the question, and I, I know this is a joke, but it's actually not a joke. This is the question of how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. And if you know this, you know the answer. The answer is not 17 or 29 or 1,376. That is not the answer of how many angels can dance on the head of the pin. The answer is one or infinity. Those are the only two possible answers because this is the reason. If an angel takes up space, if it can be measured, if it can be quantified, then only one angel could ever dance on the head of a pin. The question is taking up space geometrically on a point. So only one angel could dance there. However, if angels don't have materiality, they do not take up mass. They have no weight. They can't be measured. You can't take a ruler to an angel. If, if that's the case, then the answer is infinity. Then infinity angels, because they could... They, all the angels that were ever made could stand on the head of that pen and, and infinite more could stand up because they're not taking up any space. This is a big question for religious people to try to answer. It's And while it, you may make fun of it, how many angels dance on the head of a pen, it's actually crucial. What is the spirit? What is the soul? I'm sure you've seen it. There's all kinds of things that run around the internet about, oh, when you die, you weigh 17 grams less. It's not true. But, you know, when you die, you weigh 17 grams less or this and that and the other. That's getting at the same thing, the quantifiability of the soul. Does it take up mass? Then beyond that, does it have color? Does it have attributes? Uh, does it look pale? Does it look red? Does it look green? And the big question that's sitting all behind this is how does physicality and spirituality interact? How, how do they? How do they get near each other at any given moment? And when they get near each other, what happens? I think that I've gone on about this a lot because I'm impatient for the answer that I know Dante will get to eventually. But I think at this moment, the poetry is enough for the poet Dante. I'm going to go back to that those first lines. We were walking over the shades that lay about under the leaden rain and putting the soles of our feet on that emptiness that seemed like real people. That's gorgeous, right? On that emptiness that seemed like real people. It's horrifying, it's nightmarish, but it's also aesthetically pleasing. And I think for this moment, Dante is mm, okay with the aesthetically pleasing poetry of the corporeality and materiality of the spirit without worrying about the theology. How do I say this in another word? Uh, the poetry is enough.
The poetry is enough for the poet at this moment. And maybe it should be for me too. Maybe I should let the poet's lead take me and say, okay, come on. This is the problem with the afterlife, and he's not going to solve it yet. Instead, he's going to write gorgeous poetry, skipping over what is a potentially large problem. Okay, the second point. They're all scattered on the ground, right? And they walk past one, and this one sits right up as they pass, right? We, when we passed right by, he sat up. Now, I get this. I get how he sees Dante because Dante is in his body. He's corporeal. So Dante takes up mass, so I know how the shade sees him. And then the shade speaks. And I'm not going to do that voice, which was some wild fusion of the emperor from Star Wars and Paul Lynn all at one moment. So I can't do it again. It wrecked my throat. So I'm just going to say, he sits up and he says, oh, you get a guided tour of hell. Recognize me if you've got the know-how. The damn want to be known. And then he gives this line, which is where I want to stop. You were before I was unmade made. Let me give you that line in the medieval Tuscan. Tu fosti prima che ho disfatto fatto. It's so beautiful. You were before I unmade made. Tu fosti prima che ho disfatto fatto. And Disfatto and fatto are put right next to each other in the medieval Tuscan, unmade and made. And believe me, that is central to the action of this canto. That which is made can be unmade, and that which is unmade is unmade for a reason, and that which is unmade can often not be remade. This question of disfatto and fatto is central, unfortunately, not to this episode of the podcast, but to the next passage. And it's it's stated right here. It's it's sitting here. You were before I was unmade made. So I believe so we'll see it. So we'll think it through. And again, the poetry tu fosti prima fatto fatto is just so gorgeous. I think it's enough for the poet. Okay. The third bit. Notice that the poet doesn't know who this is. The stress you suffer may have erased you from my mind so that I don't think I've ever seen you before, but tell me who you are. Set down in this place of suffering with such a penalty that none is so nauseating. Remember, this place is disgusting. Putrid ground, hail, snow, fetid rain. Oh, it's just disgusting. That none is so nauseating, even if it's greater. I know there's a problem right there. There's a plot problem. Uh, how would Dante the Pilgrim know that anything is greater or less than this? How would he have anything to measure this by? How would he know that there are worse punishments ahead? I know it's a little bit of a plot flaw, but you know what? We're just going to let it happen. It's okay because it is nauseating here. And this is what I want to get to. Dante says, tell me who you are. And he to me, your city. Interesting. He doesn't answer who he is at first. He will. But he doesn't answer who he is at first. Your city, which is so full of envy that its bag overflows, held me in it when life was cloudless. Oh, okay. So let's talk through this just a second. Your city. He identifies himself as mm, a Florentine. Maybe he's not a Florentine, but he knows Dante is, and they seem to come from the same place. We'll see this later in the passage for the next episode. They seem to come from the same place. This fellow 
is the first of over 35 Florentines in the comedy. This is the first one we've met. And just to let you know, the vast majority of the Florentines in comedy are in hell. And this is our first Florentine sitting up here saying, your city, which is so full of envy that its bag overflows. Notice the glutton image, the overflowing sack of grain. It's overflowing. But notice the second thing. This fellow has introduced a second sin. He hasn't yet said anything about gluttony. He does in the next tercet, but not yet. Just, just that image of a bag overflowing. But he's introduced a second sin, envy. Notice that there's a second sin introduced into this canto. And let me just pause here and make a comment about this. Part of what's going on here is a kind of fusion of gluttony mixed with envy. And gluttony mixed with envy is a recipe for disaster in a world of limited resources. I don't want to call your attention now to this moment, to income inequality, to abundance in some parts of the world and not in others, to abundance in some parts of one country and not in others. But I just want you to sit with the idea, because it's going to come up here, that gluttony, when it gets mixed with envy, is a recipe for disaster. Because in the next passage, in the next episode of this podcast, when we get on and this fellow talks some more, we're going to discover what happened when gluttony got mixed with envy and the chaos that followed. So he says that he combines envy with this image of an overflowing bag. And then he said, it held me in life, it held me in it when life was cloudless. And what he says is la vita serena. This is a little bit of a joke. Remember, we're in a place with hail and snow and rain and putrid ground. And here he says, it held me in it when life was cloudless. Or maybe a better way to say it is, held me in it when life was sunny. He's making a play, a joke, that this inclement weather here is nothing like, well, my life was like it was sunny when I was up top. And here, I'm just caught in this constant hailstorm. Now he identifies himself. You citizens called me Jacko. And for the contemptible sin of the gut or the gullet, as you can see, I am beaten down by this rain. This is what's important. He's now named the sin for this contemptible sin of the gut. Gluttony. As you can see, I'm beaten down. I'm a miserable spirit. I'm not alone. All these here endure the same penalty for the same guilt. And then he said no more. <laughs> Fortunately, he's not going to say no more. So let me go on and do a couple more points of this. Let's talk first about gluttony and why it's here. Gluttony and lust were often linked in the Middle Ages. When we get the list of the seven deadly sins, gluttony and lust are often put against each other, just like here in Canto 5 and Canto 6. And why? Here's why. Because there is a kind of, oh, it's almost a medieval joke, but not really, that the sin in the Garden of Eden is gluttony. They ate the apple. And don't forget that they're naked and walking around the Garden of Eden. And naked Eve presents the apple to Adam, and they fall. So there's a linking there, at least in medieval theology, with gluttony and lust, and they're often linked together. And the question is, which is worse? People have different answers for this, but gluttony is often seen as the worst sin. St. Bonaventura thinks it is. St. Thomas Aquinas thinks it's a worse sin than lust. And more importantly, for our purposes, Brunetto Latini, the author of 
Il Tesoretto thinks it is. Latini, who is potentially Dante's teacher, or at least someone Dante wants us to think was his teacher. Latini also thinks gluttony is a worse sin than lust. So in the rankings of the sins, it seems worse because, well, honestly, you're living in a medieval context. Resources are super scarce, so people who pig out at the table are really taking food out of other people's mouths. Maybe they are now too, but honestly, in a medieval context, they are absolutely taking food out of people's mouths. But let's step one step further, well, farther or further, in this passage. Notice that when this fellow sits up, he says, your city and you citizens, notice what he's doing. He's linking gluttony to politics. This is a giant question. Canto six will become, as you will see, a political canto. It follows on the heels of Canto five. Canto five, the lustful, partially explored the connection of lust and the city. Remember I told you those characters up on the wind that Virgil names off? All of them destroyed civilization because of their lust. Their lust didn't just affect them and their families. It literally brought empires down. Or Guinevere and Lancelot, as Francesca is reading about, we're talking about lust as a political sin, as it were, or that threatens the body politic. And here, we're going to connect gluttony to the body politic in different ways. There, it's that lust threatens the social order. Here, there will be something about how a city is rotted because a city itself can get gluttonous or that the body politic can get overflowing or that the bag of the body politic overflows, to use Chaco's words. It's an interesting problem. I'm going to explore it more in the next episode, but you should just think about that for a moment. The connection of citizenry and gluttony. Okay, next bit. Chaco. That's what he says. Your citizens call me Chaco. Who is this Chaco after all? Oh, there's so many answers. And let me run down a few of the answers for you. The 14th century commentator Francesco Tabuti claimed that Chaco is actually a Tuscan slang word for hog. So when he says your citizens called me Chaco, what he's saying is your citizens called me pig or hog, like a nickname. Here's the problem. It's true, Francesco Tabuti is writing very close to the writing of the comedy, 14th century commentator after all, but there is absolutely no other evidence that chaco was a slang word for hog in medieval Tuscan. We have no other example of someone using it to mean hog. So that, it's you know, yeah, I guess we have to credit Francesco Tabuti with something because he was closer to the comedy than we are. There's not any, There's never been a shred of evidence found that suggests otherwise. Some people will claim that this is a reference to a poet, a 13th century poet. In fact, uh, the critic Isidore Dalungo, an uh, early critic, claims that this is Chaco del Anguilla, uh, a 13th century versifier, middling poet. That's great, except the only evidence we have connecting them is their name Chaco. Well, Dalungo found a Chaco and said, well, that must be this Chaco. But there's no evidence to suggest that. That would be like saying this guy's named John and there's another guy named John. Boccaccio, generation after Dante, 
claims that Chaco is a Florentine wit and bon vivant, and that this person is somebody Dante knew, and that this this kind of wit who throw we might say giant dinner parties. This is this is his place here. Problem is Boccaccio, the writer of the Decameron, is prone to making up stories. Lots and lots of stories. And Boccaccio's evidence is not always the most trustworthy. And then there's a, there's a pseudonymous commentator, somebody writes under a pseudonym, who claims that this is a Florentine banker who ate and drank so much that he went blind and that Dante knew this person. Again, it's hard to track it down. And lately, some people have advanced the idea that Chaco is Tuscan for Jacques for the French name Jacques, and his real name would be Jacques, except in the medieval Tuscan that gets translated to Chaco. And, of course, then there's a French gluttony joke going on here, a little bit of wit going on in the passage about you know how the French are and how much they eat and all that stuff. Notice how many ideas there are for who this fellow is. No one will ever figure it out. It has been the constant drone of commentary over the years of who is Chaco. What is interesting to me is that this figure is already passing out of history by the time the comedy is written. Some of these are very, very early commentators who are positing who this is. And this fellow, Chaco, is already obscured in the mists of history, even right after the comedy is written. And I think that's incredibly important. A, because the pilgrim doesn't recognize him, right? The pilgrim says, the distress you suffer may have erased you from my mind. And B, because we are entering a deeply political canto. And there is a very strong irony that this figure, who will ultimately, in the next episode of this podcast, offer a giant indictment of Florence, this figure is is rubbed out from history. A historical indictment of Florence is given by someone who is obscured by the mists of history. I think the irony here is superb. It is about a citizen talking about citizenry, and this citizen is non-identifiable. Fabulous, unbelievably difficult ironic twist for me on the entire passage itself. So let me talk to you about one more thing before we pass on and out of this passage. This is the question that is going to get asked several times over the course of comedy, and it is, how can someone be guilty of one sin? I mean, seriously, how can you be the lustful? How can you be the greedy or the proud? How can you be guilty of one? I mean, listen, I've lived a long, full life. I would be guilty of a lot of these sins. And when we get up to purgatory, we're going to find out that you can spend various amounts of time purgating each of the sins. But in hell, it seems as if you're just a sin. Chaco is, after all, a glutton. Francesca is the lustful. So the question arises... What are these figures? How can you be this? And here's what they are. And this is what Dante's art is so amazing at doing. These figures are allegorical. Without one doubt, Chaco is mm, sort of an allegory of gluttony. But they're more than that. 
Allegory, just to remind you, is when characters are used to represent abstractions. So in the most ham-handed um, allegories, love or hate or gluttony or lust, walk around and talk, right? Like in the play Everyman that you may remember from college English. That's the most basic allegory, but you use characters to represent points of view or abstractions. People still write allegorical novels. I just taught in a discussion group a Walker Percy novel from the 1960s, The Last Gentleman. And without a doubt, that novel is imbued with allegory because one character definitely represents, for lack of a better word, the spirit. And one character definitely represents the flesh. And they go at it and they have these long discussions in which one is arguing from the, for lack of a better word, fleshly, the body perspective. And the other is is arguing from the spiritual or the, you know, the, 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 the realm of the soul the realm of the ultimate divine good. And they're kind of arguing back and forth with each other. And in fact, the main character of the novel kind of disappears as they have their big argument between the two of them. So you can still have allegorical writing today. You can have characters represent points of view. Dante is a little more sophisticated than that. Let me go back to the Vita Nuova, that book about his discovery of Beatrice. When he meets Beatrice, I told you in a previous episode that he also meets this allegorical, angelic figure in white who is an allegory of love. And we see this allegory of love interacting with Dante while he's also having his trembling love for Beatrice. She ultimately moves into a strange position in Vita Nuova. She moves from being a flesh-and-blood woman who walks the streets of Florence into some kind of liminal space where she's halfway allegory and halfway real. We know this because the first time we see her, basically, we see her dead. Beatrice's death is encoded in her from almost the moment we see her. I mean, Dante sees her and uh, he has this wild reaction to her when he's nine. And then the next, mm, pretty close, next thing that happens is she's lying in the arms of this white-robed figure. And this is when she eats Dante's heart. But, you know, that idea of lying in the arms of a white-robed figure is kind of an image of death right from the beginning. So she's 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 wavering between a flesh and blood creature and an allegory and partly because is she alive or is she dead? Is she sexual or is she holy? Is she Beatrice, the object of desire or Beatrice, the object of spiritual quest? Uh, she's entering into a liminal spot between allegory and realism. She's sitting inside that spot and that is is Dante's art. Dante's art is to ride the line between allegory and realism with Chaco, with Francesca, with Karen and his boat, with Cerberus, with Virgil, with the pilgrim. The pilgrim himself is a midway point between allegory and realism. What does he say? In the middle of the journey of our life, thereby allegorizing the pilgrim of our life, of making him an embodiment of something about us. And yet at the same time, this pilgrim that we're walking with has his own concerns, his own fears, his own foibles, his own misunderstandings. Dante's art sits right in the 
crack between allegory and realism. And that's why we can have Chaco as a glutton, because he is the allegory of gluttony. And he is, Francesca is the allegory of lust. And Karen is the allegory of a certain kind of uh, willful disregard that follows God's laws while damning God at the same moment. Or Cerberus is an allegory of kind of gluttonous beast, bestial demon, half human, half beast. And yet at the same time, they are also real figures that eat gobs of muck or have shaggy beards. It's right in that crack. That's what I find so amazing. And for many centuries, Dante was read almost solely allegorically. The comedy was this giant allegory being worked out. But I think actually in the modern world, we might be finally able to see the comedy as this wild fusion between an older way of writing allegory and a more coming modern way of writing realism. And so these characters are riding the line. And so Chaco rides the line. And when we come back in the next episode, he's going to ride that line into a political prophecy. Gluttony is going to get bound up in civics. Fascinating set of problems. This is why it's worth walking slowly through comedy, because it just reveals so much at every turn. Let me read the passage one more time. It's a short passage, just so we get it out there. We were walking over the shades that lay about under the leaden rain and putting the soles of our feet on the emptiness that seemed like real people. All of them were scattered about on the ground, except for one who sat right up, right when he saw us pass in front of him. Oh, you who get a guided tour of hell, he said to me. Recognize me, if you've got the know-how. You were before I was unmade, made. And I to him, the distress you suffer may have erased you from my mind, so that I don't think I've seen you before. But tell me who you are. Sit down in this place of suffering, with such a penalty that none is so nauseating, even if it's greater. And he to me, Your city which is so full of envy that its bag overflows held me in it when life was cloudless. Your citizens called me Jackhorn for the contemptible sin of the gut. As you can see, I am beaten down by this rain. I am a miserable spirit, but I am not alone. All these here endure the same penalty for the same guilt. And then he said no more. If you've enjoyed this podcast, Working with Dante, this episode of the podcast, Working with Dante, I hope you'll subscribe. I hope you come back for more. If you're just dropping in here, hey, go back to the beginning. We've been walking all along. You can start and come forward. Check out my website, markscarborough.com. You can drop comments there. We can talk to each other. Or better, check me out on Twitter. I'm under my own name, Mark Scarborough. You can find me on Twitter. We can connect. We can talk about Dante. I, nothing would make me happier. Thanks for being on the journey with me. Thanks for being here for this podcast, and I hope to see you on the next episode when Chaco himself delivers an astounding prophecy. Mm-hmm.